You guys probably don't know this, but I wrote a zombie short story. And it won a short story award. I got $25 and inclusion in uh, an anthology of short stories. Uh, you know, zombie stories are not my genre, generally. It's just not the sort of thing I tend to write about. But I had this dream, this zombie dream that felt like it had significant meaning. So I constructed it into a short story. So sorry for all the spoilers. I'm sure you'll be rushing out to get that anthology soon. But the story is basically this. Um, a girl growing up in a neighborhood keeps getting warned, you don't go into that abandoned house. You know, it's just not safe. Well, this only piques her curiosity. And lo and behold, at some point, you know, she finds her way into this abandoned house. And when she looks out of the front door uh, peephole, she sees the street that she grew up on. You know, she sees the neighborhood, but everyone walking around are zombies. And she realizes or thinks maybe this house sort of sits on this uh, threshold between the zombie world and my normal world. So she keeps coming back to this house. She's just curious and she's looking out the peephole and eventually a zombie girl comes up and she opens the door and the two are, you know, a little bit freaked out, a little scared of one another, but over time they continue meeting. They develop this relationship, even though they're a little nervous about one another. And uh, after, I don't know, the sixth or seventh meeting, the hero, heroine, the, the person at the center of the story, the girl, thinks, now zombies turn other people into zombies when they bite them, but if a healthy person bites a zombie, I bet that will turn them into a healthy person. So she's playing with this over and over in her mind. Finally, she gets up, reaches out, grabs the girl's hand, and she's just freaking out. The zombie girl's just freaking out. And she lifts her hand up to her mouth and bites into it. And is, it's at that moment that it dawns on the girl, she's the zombie and the other girl is the normal world. The, the zombie world as she saw it is the normal world. And she, the normal world, is the world of zombies. And so it's just this great, you know, I looked for the enemy and found that the enemy was me kind of thing. Like, so this sort of dawning realization that we tend to look at stories and place ourselves in the hero or heroine spot when maybe we're the villain. Like, uh, as Christians, we do this in scripture. A friend of mine calls it the Disney princess syndrome. Like, we're always Belle when we're watching those movies. We're never Gaston in the movies. We always view ourselves as Belle or as the princess. You know, we read the story of the Exodus and we're not the Egyptians, right? <laughs> we're not Sanballat, we're Nehemiah. You know, we're not the oppressor, we're the oppressed. And it's this kind of um, inability to encounter scripture or to encounter story and to recognize ourselves in the villain or to see ourselves in the uh, unsavory character. Um, 
but maybe we are the villain sometimes. And I find that with myself. You know, the zombie story has helped me to recognize the zombie in myself uh, and that the people I project as zombies may actually be the normal ones. And my attempt to make them normal like me may be zombifying others, you know, in my argumentativeness. I still have a um, greater concern for my own financial security than the financial security of my brothers and sisters. I um, would rather win an argument than win a brother or a sister sometimes. And I'm more concerned about political position than heart position. Those are the zombie aspects of me that, you know, as I'm looking out, I'm, I'm seeing zombies and not recognizing the zombie in me. We're uh, approaching the end of Nehemiah. We'll have uh, the great privilege of having Dave Day teaching from England next week, next Sunday. But we're in chapter 5, and you've got to realize this is a massive undertaking, this wall. So you're, you're talking about two and a half miles of wall. It's not like two and a half miles of snow fence, right? Uh, I mean, think about a wall that's eight feet thick and 40 feet high, you know, taller than our church, 40 feet high, eight feet thick, going for two and a half miles. The workforce required and the engineering feat required for this massive, massive wall, just enormous. Let me read Nehemiah 5, 1 through 11. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still, others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although they were the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only to be bought back, uh, for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men 
are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. You think of the vision that must have stirred these people to leave their vineyards and fields, leave their regular work, go on unpaid leave to work on this wall. Months of work that's lost. And there's a famine going on. Like, I think it was something of a revival. These people are leaving their regular work to go work on this wall. And if you've ever been part of a grand vision that just makes all of your needs feel small in comparison, you're just excited to be part. Like this is the the prophecies are being fulfilled. We're restoring Zion. It's really happening. That kind of excitement stirred them. And yet they were experiencing suffering as a result. You know, people from around the area, not just in the rubble that used to be Jerusalem, but all around were leaving their fields and their trades. And on top of that, there's a famine going on. And so, you know, the laws of supply and demand existed then too. Supply is low, demand is high. We can charge more for the grain. So they're being gouged by the merchants selling grain. Um, And so they're mortgaging their fields and their vineyards in order to feed their families and add to this the Persian tax. All right, the King Artaxerxes, you know, has his palace needs. So they are, we don't have money for the, uh, for the tax. And these, you know, wealthy nobles and officials, okay, I'll pay your tax. Give me the deed to your land. So they're giving away their land in order for these nobles to pay the tax so that the Persian royalty can live in luxuries. And then it's like, hey, I've given you my land. All right, sell your kid into indentured servitude to me for some period of time. So they're selling their families into slavery. And, you know, there had been an effort, apparently, because... Uh, the poor Israelites living in this area had had to sell themselves to the Gentiles, into slavery to the Gentiles, and some effort was mobilized to buy back, to pay these Gentiles to release these guys. So they're getting on their feet after having been uh, working uh, for the Gentiles, maybe as a sharecropper, but some kind of enslavement to the Gentiles, and now they're having to sell themselves again. Nehemiah's like, look, we just bought these people back from the Gentiles. Now you're selling one another into slavery. Um, You know, and on top of that, you're charging interest. I went down a little rabbit hole, uh, this verse. There is a 1954 issue of the Jewish Quarterly Review that looks at just this one verse. What do they mean by interest? And what is this 1% 
you know, how's that translated? Well, here's how interest was. Here's the ancient documents on interest in uh, Babylon and Assyria and Persia. And here's our records, you know, and let's look at how the Septuagint, so this is the Greek Hebrew Bible, 200 BC, the scholars and translators of that time had the best manuscripts, Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts, and they made a Greek Old Testament, as we would call it, or Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and so what does the Septuagint say in this you know, Nehemiah 5, verse 11. And how does that compare to the Latin Vulgate? So like in 380, you know, the Christianity, which is now the official religion, makes this Latin translation, St. Jerome. Like, he's using the best manuscripts that he can find in the 300s. So maybe even manuscripts that we don't have access to anymore, these ancient and, and then what's the Syriac and what's the Arab? And so this guy, you know, goes in this long article. It was just a fun little rabbit hole. <clears throat> 1% a month, he concludes, 12% a year. That was the exorbitant interest that was being charged. Any interest from Jew to Jew is exorbitant according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament sets up this economic system uh, <clears throat> that's egalitarian. Like, no super rich, no super poor. In fact, Deuteronomy 15 says, there should be no poor among you. Should be no poor among you. Like, that's the, the economic policy I'm setting up. And, <clears throat> in fact, archaeological evidence seems to suggest that before the time of Solomon and uh, the kings afterward, Many of the dig sites suggest that homes basically occupied the same kind of footprint. Uh, that's all they can see in some of these digs is sort of the footprint of homes and maybe some shards. After the time of Solomon, something happened, and there are these big palatial homes and then just sort of row houses. Like some kind of imbalance occurred that seemed to be relatively egalitarian pre-1000 BC, and after that, some change seems to have happened. But um, it, it, that's why God said, don't do the king thing. Like, you don't, you don't want to get into the king business because it's going to create these huge disparities. They're going to demand all these taxes. They're going to have these big chariots and armies. They're going to have these big places. You don't want to go there. Part of the reason God advised against the king thing was the economic disparity that would happen when they have a class of royalty. Um, and so here, here were these nobles. Um, you know, the, the plunder of the poor is in your homes, is what, how Isaiah put it a few hundred years earlier. And their great-grandparents, or their grandparents, had Jeremiah saying things like, like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of treachery, therefore they've become great and rich. The very reason that they're having to rebuild the rubble is because of the usury, the exploitation, the oppression, the economic disparity that they had allowed to grow up in their people, creating a class of poor and a class of rich, and like, that's enough. Hundreds of years I've been telling you 
don't do this. It will not go well for you. And now here they are in a revival, rebuilding the wall and doing the same thing that got them in that place in the first place. Now, uh, to the credit of the nobles, you know, they, they're cut to the quick. I think the real sign of revival is when <clears throat> uh, the rich began to correct injustices. It's the Zacchaeus, right? That's the revival. I mean, thousands coming for the bread and the fish, that's cool. But it's, you know, Zacchaeus saying, I'm going to give away my, my money and I'm going to pay back people I've ripped off. That's revival. Genuine revival. Here are the nobles and officials saying, You're right. You're right. We're so sorry. No arguments. You know, they could have been like, Hey, look, we've been here. I don't know where you've been in some palace in Susa, Nehemiah. We've been here with our people trying to keep Zion alive in some respects. You know, we're loaning people money. We're, you know, keeping people fed. We're helping. No, they recognized right away, you're absolutely right. We've been taking advantage of folk. All right. You know, and, oh, we paid these people's tax. They gave us their deeds, and I've got this stack of deeds, and I'm going to give them back now. That's costly. It is costly for the nobles to say, you're right, I'm sorry, I'm going to give back, and I'm going to pay back the interest that they paid me, because that's the right thing to do. Wow. Yeah, there's a community. There is a vision that is bringing people together to do amazing things. I've seen it in various places. One of the places I've seen it is I've got friends <clears throat> who moved into the downtown east side of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. Downtown east side, highest concentration of intravenous drug users of anywhere in North America. A really very desperate place. Uh, the homeless outnumber the housed in this area. And I've got friends like, hey, let's move in there and just be the people of God in this place. And they had these really amazing dinners and I participated in one of them. And they have two sayings. First of all, uh, make too much food was one of their sayings for these dinners. And the first time you come, you're a guest. The second time you come, you're host. And so first time homeless folk coming in, look, you're royalty, you're guest. Hey, you were here last week. All right, there's the dishes. Uh, come a half hour early next time so you can help cook. Like, no, you're part of the family and you're part of the hosting. Really rich, vibrant community. Here's what my friend who's writing a book on peacemaking, he's taking, um, he's taking the, the passion, the Holy Week, and looking at, at it through a lens of peacemaking. <clears throat> when I lived in the downtown east side, <clears throat> Jason Porterfield says, I worked hard to extend the love of Christ to my neighbors. Most days, I walked the streets for a few hours, prayerfully striking up conversations with those camped on sidewalks. Twice a week, I served breakfast at a local soup kitchen and afterwards offered a listening ear to anyone who wanted to talk. 
I helped convert abandoned lots into community gardens. I regularly attended events at local community centers. And I was always looking for an excuse to treat my neighbors and myself to a delicious cup of coffee at one of the many locally owned cafes. Yet if I'm honest with you, I must confess that despite all my personal efforts to minister to my neighbors, I saw very little fruit. But here's the catch. I didn't move to the downtown east side on my own. My wife and I were part of a missional community of Christians who collectively worked together for the flourishing of those around us. In a neighborhood where loneliness was endemic, hospitality became our community's primary form of ministry. That is to say, we welcomed into our home those who are not normally the recipients of welcome. And once inside, we treated them like family. We cooked together, ate together, cleaned the dishes together, we laughed together, cried together, and celebrated even the smallest of milestones together. Many evenings, we'd break out the guitar and sing an eclectic mix of classic rock and classic hymns. And sometimes our neighbors gifted us things. Other times, they stole our things. They inspired us and drained us, blessed us and cursed us. And often, while waiting to be admitted into rehab, our homeless friends came and lived with us. As we welcomed our neighbors into community, lives were transformed. Many broke free of their addictions and got off the streets. Those who hadn't spoken to family in years began to heal their severed relationships. Several neighbors committed their lives to Jesus. Some even became cherished members of our community. And one member, former addict, is now serving in his 11th year as a missionary among the poorest of the poor in Cambodia. Where my personal efforts to love those around me seem to produce little impact, many of those same neighbors experienced profound transformation when they were welcomed into a loving community. This begs the question, why did I see such little fruit when ministering as an individual, yet abundance of fruit when doing so as part of a loving community. What is so special about community? And how do we explain its potential to vastly increase the effectiveness of our peacemaking efforts? We're meant to be building a beloved community. That's our wall. That's our city. That's our temple that we're putting together. This is our Nehemiah effort. Our Ezra is building the beloved community, the city on the hill. Here's how uh, the message translates Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. As, a, as public as a city on a hill, if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. I'm sure part of the community that was working on this wall had Isaiah 58 in mind, this sort of great, great Isaiah passage, prophetic passage um, that has a lot of justice roots. But this one verse, 
probably singing this, reciting this as they're building the wall. Isaiah 58, 12. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. They're not building a city. They're building a society. They're building a community. They're doing that together in physically rebuilding these things. But the quest of the spiritual life, even among the Hebrews, as among the Christians, has been about building a community of God lovers and being so infectious because of our adherence to the commands of love that others want to join. Hebrews 11.10 Abraham wasn't looking to plant his tent in some space that he could sort of just create his own family community. Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. That's the kind of place Abraham was setting out for. Some of us have had a a vocation that's dedicated to building the kingdom, like deciding, I don't think I'm going to take a regular job. I think I'm going to work in this full-time minister. I know the feeling of vulnerability, 35 years now in ministry, of relying on others to help supply what you need to do your job. I don't do a job where I sell a product that has a price tag on it or provide a service that I can charge for. I can't charge for the gospel. I'm not charging students. And so you, you become very vulnerable and dependent on people to supply what you need. And there's a handful in this body and a handful in the world that's like, no, I think full-time, rather than working in the vineyards, I'm to work in this vineyard that doesn't have a ready income source, and I'll just trust God's people to provide. You know, that's scary at times. And yet, I've never gone hungry. Janine and I have enjoyed a very rich life. We enjoy uh, simple living, and so that's part of it. We're just content, and we've never gone hungry, never gone without. It's been a privilege. But we are the temple. Here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we are the living stones, the binding agent is love between us. That's the mortar that's holding us together. You know, a new command I give to you. You've heard of the Ten Commands. Here's the Eleven Commands. Love one another and do it in the way that I've loved you. Like I've showed you what it looks like. Now I want you to love one another like that. That's my command. 
Love is the thing that builds the Zion, the Jerusalem, the temple that will draw the nations. I mean, the Old Testament is filled. I'm going through the Old Testament in my kind of daily readings and uh, the law. Man, the number of times it's like, and the foreigner shall be treated like the native born in these ways. Like, there was this expectation that you will be, because of how you live, you'll be inundated by people who want to live with you. You know, the same passage that says, there shall be no poor among you in Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, I think it's like verse 7, there will always be poor among you. And it's this sort of sense, there should be no poor among you. I'm setting this up, and because of that, you're going to be a magnet, especially for folk who are desperate. So there's always going to be. And remember that. And so that's why you don't glean to the very edges. That's why you, you know, have these systems. Like you're not going to be in debt for more than seven years. And then if you can't pay it back after seven years, just forget it. Like just drop it. Imagine how that would uh, affect the lending institutions. You know, you probably have smaller loans and you'd be very invested in the borrower getting on their feet in a short period of time so that they could pay off the loan rather than the, we want you to be ever in debt and ever paying on a loan. So, you know, I want you guys to live such rich lives that all the nations are like, who is their God? And I want to be part of them. That's the holy structure that we're building. And I do see some of that. Uh, Friday night was Pete Silver's funeral. Pete was sometimes hard to love. And yet, you know, people reflected on the beauty and grace of Pete's tender heart. There was a tenderness to him. He would get in very tearful when talking about or listening about the love of God. And there was a sweetness to him, even though it was encrusted sometimes with a cantankerousness. Um, and yet, man, this guy had a huge network of people who just loved and cared for him. Just amazing. That's kind of a picture of the beloved community. But it's not what... I'm seeing much of lately. I think in my 35 years of ministry and more than that being in uh, the church family, I've seen more uh, bickering and divisiveness and outright hatred than I have ever seen in all my Christian life. When we were in Ireland, uh, couple months ago yeah I the uh, one of the guys that we had come speak lived in uh, Belfast Northern Ireland he was in his 60s he had lived through the troubles um, you know he had seen the devastation of the Catholic Protestant hatred and he said to this group of Americans I have to be honest with you, and some of you aren't going to like this. 
The hatred I see in the Christian community in America is worse than it was during the troubles between the Protestants and Catholics. I've got lots of American friends, and I watch them on social media, and I am shocked and appalled at the vitriol you all possess. It is worse than Ireland in the 80s, and it's shameful. He laid into us a little bit. It's true. Some studies are suggesting now amongst Christians uh, of all stripes that there is a stronger identity or sense of belonging to a particular political party or set of views than to the faith, than to the Christian faith. Like, how do you identify yourself? How do you see yourself? First and foremost, within this set of uh, political affiliations, secondarily, you know, within my Christian faith. I've seen, even within this congregation, around hot-button issues, I've seen anger explode, I've seen ridicule, I've seen shaming amongst us. This is one of the most loving communities I've ever known. And the ways in which we think we're healing someone by biting into them, we're only turning them into zombies like us. Right? I'm guilty of it. I know that at times. It's not the beloved community that's going to attract those who are looking for something like it. We've become the zombies. And they'll know we are Christians by our politics, by our politics. <laughs> our stand on issues. It's our love. And particularly our love with people who take vehemently different positions. It's not that we ought not to have convictions. Not that we ought not to be invested and involved and having differences in how we think flourishing occurs. It's in how we love one another across those differences. That's where the energy, if you've got some energy, how about love? How about love for one another and love for those outside ourselves as we look to see the kingdom on the university in the triangle and green bush. How about beginning by loving? Work on the wall is internal first. I need to sort stuff out in my own heart, mind, attitude. People want to belong to a beloved community. And until we learn to love one another across differences, I don't know that we have much to offer. The university, the triangle, Greenbush. I realize I've taken the building of the wall and Nehemiah into a different direction, but as I was praying and struggling with how to see this particular passage in this grand effort, it's the thing that kept coming to mind. Let me pray for us.
and send us out to love one another and to love others outside of ourselves, outside of our circle. So that that becomes the distinguishing characteristic. That becomes the mark that's like, oh, this person stands out because not that they have a certain opinion, but that they love across opinions. Uh, we love God because you first loved us, and we were not lovely in some ways when you decided to love us. And then you said, I want you to love one another in the same way. We need your help. There's a lot of vitriol out there. And often I'm the person biting the other person thinking it's going to heal them. And I realize I'm the one who's got the disease. Lord, we ask for your healing, your generosity. Paul talks to the Romans about the kind of bickering over disputable matters. You know, the weak brothers were the ones who had very specific ideas about how to live and the more restrictive view. And the strong brother or sister was the one with the more generous orthodoxy. And he says, look, don't try to impose one another's views on each other. To his own master he'll stand or fall. Stop judging. Lord, would you teach us those ways? Everything feels like an essential matter. All these bickerings, what if some of them are disputable matters and we've chosen them as hills to die on? God, teach us a generous orthodoxy toward one another. Teach us how to love as you loved. Thanks for placing us here and now in this community, show us what it looks like to love across difference in Jesus' name. Amen.